This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Hello, and welcome to this episode in which we will review Roger Kalt's book *Suburban Planet*. Following up on our episode, take your eyes off the city center. A conversation with Roger Kyle that was published uh, in September. And uh, today we're pleased to announce three reviewers for this book. Our first review is Teresa Enright from the University of Toronto. Our second reviewer is Berenice Bon from the French National Research Institute for Sustainable Development in Paris. Our third reviewer is Philip Koch from the Zurich University of Applied Sciences. Following them, uh, Roger Kai will then respond and close the piece. But first, Teresa. Hi, my name is Teresa Enright, and I'm Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto. And I'm here today to say a few words about Roger Kyle's book, Suburban Planet. So I've had a long fascination with suburbia. I grew up in the Toronto inner suburb of Scarborough, and even as a child, I was always keenly aware that to those on the outside, my world was both unimportant and inferior. Scarborough's two most common nicknames were Scarberia and Scarlow, and these no-doubt racist monikers really captured the way that Scarborough was imagined as a faraway and barren place, and stigmatized as a dangerous site of crime and degeneracy. I didn't have the words to describe it then, but it was clear that to those in the city center, the storytellers, the talking heads, the decision makers, Scarborough was a problem entirely apart. Not merely not quite or not yet urban, but something other than and less than Toronto proper. And although this depiction was really pervasive, it was also so obviously wrong. Even prior to Toronto's amalgamation, the borders between Scarborough and Toronto were porous. And more importantly, the idea that Toronto suburbs were homogenous wastelands belied the actually existing vibrancy and diversity of life that could be found within them. Certainly Scarborough had and has its problems, among them a lack of social and political resources, profound spatial segregations, as well as systemic poverty, racism, and inequality. But it also housed forms of everyday life and community, and a banal multiculturalism that were not well captured in dominant discourses. To those of us living in the suburbs, they were not only places of disorder, but they were also sites of possibility. So it was this rather disjointed experience of living in the suburbs that first sparked a critical awareness of space and place that has been formative in my academic career. So my first book was about the remaking of the Parisian suburbs in the aftermath of the 2005 Banlieue revolts. Through this work, it became clear that just as the suburbs tended to be caricatured in the popular imaginaries, so too did a suburban lacuna exist in urban scholarship. Not only were suburbs at the margins of critical urban thought, but when they did appear, they largely did so in hyperbolic and moralistic terms. Villains of sprawl and ungovernability, or heroic crucibles of radical social unrest. And so I was eager to read Suburban Planet for its promise to consider the suburbs in their own right, in all of their complexity, plurality, and contradiction. And Suburban Planet does not disappoint. So with a call to abolish the centralist bias in urban thinking, Kyle instead draws attention toward processes of urban expansion, decentralization, and suburbanization. Much of the urban age, he argues, is rather the suburban age. 
Throughout the book, Kyle introduces a new way of looking at the suburban in the context of urbanization processes overall, and he uses this eccentric lens to analyze the theoretical and empirical implications of suburbanization. Suburban Planet synthesizes almost a decade of research conducted through the ambitious Global Suburbanisms Project out of York University, and it offers up promising new directions for urban and suburban work writ large. The book is structured as a combination of conceptual, thematic, and historical chapters, focusing on global suburban processes through the organizing categories of governance, land, and infrastructure. The nine chapters present interwoven sketches of suburbanization from South and East Asia, South Africa, Western Europe, Latin America, and North America. They include examinations of capital accumulation, class struggle, planning and policymaking, and political ecology. The overarching story of these chapters is not a general theory of the suburban or comprehensive atlas of suburbs, however. The chapters instead show what Kyle describes as the kaleidoscopic nature of suburbanization, how processes of worlding and the active production and reproduction of suburban spaces across the planet highlight divergent yet comparable dynamics. Therefore, the book is an agenda for further thinking and action. Concluding the Global Suburbanisms Project, Suburban Planet is also a starting point. No doubt, this book will inspire a great deal more critical urban research that begins from the point of prioritizing the peripheral. So with that in mind, I want to take the remaining time to outline three main questions that arose for me in reading Suburban Planet. The first set of questions uh, returns to the theme of suburban experiences with which I began my discussion. So the book's various chapters provide provocative analyses of spatial and social development. But I was left wondering whether and how these processes of suburbanization intersect with what Kyle calls suburbanisms, or qualitatively distinct ways of suburban life. I'm interested in hearing more about how the arc of historical and geographic materialism intersects with the lived quotidian within plural suburban spaces, and how, for example, governance, land, and infrastructure are practiced and embodied. Despite the rich descriptions of global suburbia, Kyle's suburban planet seems curiously depeopled. There are wonderful photographs accompanying the text throughout the book, for example, but almost invariably, these images are bereft of humans. So put another way, how can we think about suburbanization, not just in the neatly bounded structures of power, but also in the messy and fragmented realities of everyday living? A second, somewhat related set of questions considers how culture is read and mobilized in the book. Scattered throughout are various descriptions of songs, novels, and films about the suburbs, and these passages are incredibly compelling. Yet these texts are not seen to be active elements of production on par with land infrastructure and governance, nor are they explicitly interrogated as essential sites of theorizing. Given the representational representational crisis of urban and by extension suburban theory, I wonder if we as social scientists also need to pay more attention to literature, music, poetics, visual arts, and performance as productive forms and as essential sources for understanding emergent suburban phenomena. Kyle talks at several points about the unknowability of the suburbs, and it seems that cultural forms that feature fiction and metaphor are especially significant in generating new spatial concepts and attitudes under these conditions, and that turning to the arts in this way might be a particularly useful strategy for engaging in what Lefebvre describes as a hypothetical mode of urban analysis. 
finally, my last question wades into the ethics and methodology of doing global urban research. Suburban Planet seeks to move away from North America as the assumed benchmark for suburban studies. And the book is refreshing for its commitment to cosmopolitan urban theory. Kyle wants to shift the historically privileged spots for observing urbanization, and his inclusive and correlative style of analysis is quite admirable. This broad approach and engagement with diverse scholars allows Kyle to unsettle some of the taken-for-granted terms of urban scholarship. And I think there's opportunity here to engage even more fully in debates over comparative urban research and about how to refuse Eurocentric worldliness in suburban studies. But I'd also be interested much more practically, although the two are surely related, in hearing more about the challenges and benefits of developing a planetary urban project that crosses numerous academic disciplines and continents. Doing research at this scale is necessarily a collective endeavor, and I'm interested in how we can, as he writes, provincialize the suburb by transforming our very practices of suburban research. So what lessons of alternative knowledge production come out of the Global Suburbanisms Project? How might this inclusive and ambitious project inform other kinds of collaborations in the future that are also seeking to challenge the long-standing power hierarchies of global knowledge production? So in sum, I enjoyed reading and learning from Suburban Planet. I think it's a useful resource for researchers and students interested in suburbs, and it's also an invitation for all critical scholars with an interest in cities to to abandon what Kyle calls the center reflex and to truly engage with the peripheries. In fact, it convincingly warns that in order to meet the grave and complex challenges of the present and future, we must, quote, learn to see the world through suburbanization, end quote. And now we will hear from Berenice Bon, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the French National Research Institute for Sustainable Development in Paris. She works at the Center for Social Sciences Studies on Africa, America and Asia. Thanks for having me today to discuss Roger Kyle's very interesting and stimulating uh, book, Suburban Planet. As Kyle points out, there is a spectacular phenomenon of suburbanization today. Urbanization is a process that is now widespread worldwide. All areas are nowadays concerned by very powerful urbanization processes that we had never known before. Roger Kyle's book is part of today's dominant debates in urban studies on planetary urbanization. These debates focus on what is happening outside the city centre in terms of morphological urban growth, mobility of populations, economic activities, land markets and governance. This recent work in urban studies is redefining what the urban is and focus on both the measurement of urbanization, mobilizing quantitative data, and urbanization processes with more empirical, qualitative data, shifting the attention to actors and institutions. Classical terms in urban studies, such as the peri-urban questions, and hybrid terminologies as in-between city, post-suburbanization appear. Roger Kyle insists on the need to look at the cities outside of the West trajectories. I work in India and in Kenya and there is clearly a move in urban studies, 
My Kenyan and Indian colleagues mobilized diverse methodological and theoretical approaches to work on the periurban. There are complex variations locally with different forms and processes of urbanization. Some existing urban centers are growing what Kyle calls primary urbanization, and new centers are emerging, like big high-tech areas, industrial clusters, or gating residential developments. If Kyle precise that there is a process of complete urbanization that turns the categories of geographical center and periphery upside down and creates new relationships among various parts of urban region, the term suburbs, at least in the French context, seems to me to indicate a certain form of dependence on an already existing urban center. It is important, however, to recall the complexity and diversity of urban growth, which is not simply depending on the proximity to metropolitan region or big infrastructures and corridors. When we study this suburbanization process, or perhaps more generally, peripheral urbanization, it is important to not forget about the different types of towns, emerging metropolitan areas, and diffuse urbanization in rural areas. This was highlighted in the Subaltern Urbanization Research Project in India. In the published book of this project, my French and Indian colleagues show that urban expansion occurs in local units still classified as rural and in the peripheries of small towns. All the cities and towns, whatever their size, have the same chance to grow. And the periphery can become the center. A local market can experience a very strong growth and can be directly connected to global markets and not a city center. However, urban forms, morphological extension of towns are not enough to appreciate, to understand and to model current urban transformation, which is also highlighted by Roger Kyle. We need to question in these new urban spaces social and economic changes, but also access to services and infrastructures. For example, I work in Kenya in the outskirts of the capital Nairobi and a very fast-growing secondary city called Nakuru. Around this city, built-up areas increased by 75% between 2010 and 2016. But we can't just rely on these urban forms. Diverse actors, and not only global corporations or state actors, are involved in the purchase, sale and subdivision of land. And sometimes these dynamics don't lead to the construction of new buildings or commercial and industrial centers in the peripheries. I follow groups of young entrepreneurs or individuals who form cooperatives, pool their savings and buy land 20 or 40 kilometers from the cities of Nairobi and Nakuru. This methodology allows me to analyze state by state the transactions and negotiations. These local or ordinary investors can decide to build small buildings and rent out the apartments, but sometimes they just keep the land for a few months and sell it for speculative reasons. Some of these individuals also choose to keep land for several years. They don't build anything. They plan to resell it to generate income, to be reinvested in commercial activities, or to keep it 
in case of illness of their children. For local governments, it means a lack of revenue and the absence of urban services. Is this just vacant land in between the rural and the urban? So behind this convergence of land that participate in the phenomena of urban sprawl and the urbanization of capital, there are several logics at very different scales. And it is important to consider the transversality of the issues, which Roger Kais also raises in his last chapter on suburban political ecologies. What are the interactions between these forms of peri-urbanization and the environment? During my fieldwork in Kenya and India, I met farmers who started by selling a piece of their land and who reinvested the money in the construction of affordable housing subsidized by the governments. So they turned themselves into real estate developers. It is a lack of ground water and irrigation, as well as a decline in income from farming that moved them to sell. But building buildings with very low-cost materials has a counterpart effect on water resources. It is all these arrangements, agencies, logics and practices at different scales that must be deciphered to understand the current transformations of urbanization. Hi, my name is Philip Koch and I'm a researcher and lecturer in urban studies in the Department of Architecture at the Zurich University of Applied Sciences in Switzerland. I'm a political scientist working on a daily basis with architects and planners, but also with political activists and community organizations. And even though most of the people I work with um, are well aware of the fact that boundaries between cities and um, their suburbs have, been, have become blurred, and that some suburbs um, are now more diverse than the urban course, um, we are often caught in mostly in our everyday language, with powerful, uh, uh, by bi powerful binaries. So, for instance, the village uh, against the city, the urban and the rural, the city as um, a liberating place, or at least the idea of the city as a liberating place, uh, versus the countryside as um, somehow impressing or small-minded. And in my professional conversations, we tend to avoid these distinctions and talk in more um, nuanced ways. But the binaries, <clears throat> in my view, still persist. This has, uh, I think, something to do with what Thomas Sievert, a German urban planner, and also cited by Roger Keil in his book, um, Thomas Sievert uh, uses this, this term anesthetics to describe what I mean. It is the incapability to sense and feel and also talk about these places, um, of, of what he calls the Zwischenstadt, the in-between city. And I think we need to engage with these places in a more effective and immediate sense. Um, and only then these places become as real as the city core, the city center. Um, and most uh, of uh, the urban scholars and planners that I know, they are much more attached to the city center. They live there, they... They talk about the city center, they spend the leisure time and often they work also in the city center. So we need to engage with those places that are not in the core, uh, but are, uh, have still, uh, um, are still important for the, 
for the urban area as such. And I read Suburban Planet by Roger Kyle as a plea and also manifesto to take suburbanization and the suburbs seriously in exactly that sense. We shouldn't just do pay lip service to suburbanization in the introductionary sections of our papers or talks and or everyday conversations, but we should consider suburbanization as meaningful and telling as the city center. I think Kiel's manifesto is timely and urgent. Let me give you an example why. In Switzerland, and I guess uh, in other places too, densification is the new spatial planning paradigm. Densification should help us to save the environment and to lower our emission of greenhouse gas. And the arguments behind that, behind that are mostly convincing but contingent on important conditions. And Roger Kyle speaks about that vividly in the book. In the chapter on the urban political ecology of suburbanization, he reveals the often unquestioned assumptions about density and sustainability. He forces us to analyze the politics of density in greater detail. Who wins, who loses when places get densified? And also what are the implications of densification beyond just curbing urban sprawl? These are questions, I think, that are of um, vital importance now that we in Switzerland, but also in other countries, start densifying our suburbs. For instance, densification will transform the material but also social infrastructures of suburbs in the next few years. But we don't know how densification will unfold and, most importantly, how, these <coughs> how densification will change um, the social and also po political relations. Because we don't know the suburbs as we know the core cities. We are, and I think Kiel is right here, often ignorant towards the suburbs. Roger Kai's book is very important to force us to acknowledge our ignorance and to find a vocabulary to talk about suburbs in a more <clears throat> analytical but also still engaging way. But after having read Kiel's book, I ask myself... Um, Where should we go from here and what do we need to know more or where do we need more clarifications? I think Roger Kai's book is a, is a very important first step, but a few, uh, some questions still um, are unresolved or um, Roger Kai has not addressed some of these questions. For instance, I was wondering about the political possibilities of uh, suburban spaces or post-suburbia. Towards the end of the book, Kyle argues that we might think of post-suburbia as a terrain of liberation. But if suburbanization or post-suburbia brings about liberation, we need to know more about the agents and processes or moments of such liberation. In this respect, and to my knowledge, the political possibilities of suburbia is rather an uncharted territory. A recurring question that Roger Kai's book raises but not really resolves is what spatial and political categories we should develop and use to describe, analyze and discuss current urban transformations. There is a tendency to reject the use of categories entirely and to try and try to find the right and appropriate terms for each case. A strategy to pay respect to the multifarious urban worlds we encounter. Maybe we need to refrain from the conceptual exercise to make room for a broader spatial vocabulary. We should really try to overcome 
<clears throat> we should really try to overcome binary between the city and the periphery in a consistent and strict manner. I understand the planetary urbanization project by Neil Brender and Christian Schmid in this way, but I think we are still lacking the right terms to describe and in precise ways the places brought about by planetary urbanization. How should we call these places without falling back into those binaries? Can we call them just urban spaces or post-suburbia as a general term? Because when reading uh, the book by Roger Kyle, I was again and again surprised how the binaries re-enter the scenes and arguments. I understand Kiel's book as an attempt to break up established ways and terms of thinking about the urban world. But it is at some point at least still caught uh, in those very categories that he tries to overcome. And now it's Roger's turn to respond to his critics. Roger Keil is a professor at the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University in Toronto. We recorded his response on a Skype call. That is why the quality of the sound is not always perfect. So thank you very much for taking the time, Teresa, Berenice, and Philip. Teresa, uh, who spoke very strongly about uh, her own upbringing in Scarborough, which is very close to me, uh, so let me take that as an, an entry point. Uh, I have also often lived uh, in places that I've found suburban and have uh, in, uh, been through the same kinds of positionalities and repositionings that one goes through when one comes from a place which is not central. Uh, my kids, for example, who grew up in Toronto don't have that problem. They have the opposite problem. They're sometimes a little bit jaded about going to places that are less central than Toronto. But uh, as uh, Teresa points out, uh, that the majority of people are like us, those people who have grown up in more peripheral contexts. And I think that sharpens one's view on the urban world. It's important without feeling provincial about where one comes from and feeling, uh, you know, perennially, uh, you know, outside of the center. It is really important that uh, without feeling, uh, you know, uh, subordinate, one can still use this as a, a critical point of view from which to develop um, things further. She's absolutely right to point out, of course, that um, it is important uh, to bring culture into the conversation. Uh, as we do this, it is the as you know, um, you know, my colleague at York University, Alison Bain, has done to look at the producers of culture who have now, to some degree, moved to the suburbs because they're pushed out of the central city. Artists, for example. Uh, but also to think about culture in that sense that we, you know, colloquial use culture as uh, uh, multiculturality, interculturality, intersectionality, uh, the questions in which uh, the suburban is now uh, not uh, associated anymore with uh, a particularly dominant culture, but it is associated with Uh, cultures of, uh, of of difference and of, of, of resistance often and of uh, different kinds of lifestyles. Then uh, the last point she makes, which I want to briefly comment on, which I will get to also in a later uh, 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 context, is, uh, is the question about global suburbanization, global suburbanism. Uh, these kinds of uh, uh, 
uh, questions about methodology and how we can even, uh, when we want to move away from North America methodologically, how we can actually do this. Uh, and that is really a difficult thing to do. It is difficult because we can always only be in one place, one place. And we can only knowledgeably speak about very few places in the world. And it, it is uh, would be a mistake for us now to replicate what has been done uh, over the whole century of the 20th century when the Chicago School uh, uh, went out to other places around the world trying to find itself or trying to find the conditions that it had described. That would be the worst thing that we can possibly do. Uh, but... We need to think about what scholarly practice could, is in a globally suburbanized world and how we can uh, bring uh, all the different ways in which people do this kind of work to and to synthesize from uh, the varieties of the variations of how we do understand those suburban differences in, uh, in, in a way that we can all benefit fit from. I also, I think this is a very important thing. And that gets me to Berenice's comments, which I enjoyed a lot, uh, a great deal. Uh, she works in areas that I'm not familiar with in India and in Kenya. I'm not personally familiar with it, with those areas. I have not been in there. I have not any work there. But I, I, I think I understand uh, the points that she's making uh, uh, from the standpoint of those, of her experiences in those places. And the first one that uh, I want to isolate here from what she says is the point about the rural. And I think this is a growing problem, partly at, on the coattails of the critique of planetary urbanization. We now have a debate about the rural again, and I think that's a, that's a, a fantastic debate uh, to have because it actually gives voice to that other half, because we say half of us now live in cities. Yes. But that means that half of us still live in rural, agriculturally based uh, economies, even though those are rapidly urbanizing. But these are, will still be uh, in themselves changing on dynamics in their own, uh, following their own trajectories. And that is really something that I think Berenice's comments made very clear. I also think the second point that I take from her quickly uh, is uh, the question of uh, what I would call, uh, not words in her, her mouth, but what I would call the dematerialization of uh, the process that we call suburbanization, which is that in the West, we are obsessed with the development of land and structures and roads and infrastructures and subdivisions. and we call suburbanization, we call that uh, uh, urban sprawl, or we call that uh, the peripheralization of our centers. And we consider that a problem. It is the material processes, the physical processes, the built environment that we pay attention to. But Bernice reminds and she, of course, now here I see echoes of, I hear echoes of Abdul Malik Simon's work, is to see uh, the peripheralization, the peri-urban, also or predominantly in the social relations, new forms that are different from both rural and the urban in the classical sense. And I think that, if I understand that correctly, is something that she pushes me to look uh, more into. Then lastly, uh, Philip. Uh, who, as I already mentioned, 
makes uh, references to the Swiss post-suburban landscape very strongly. Uh, he, and he speaks as a political scientist, such as myself, also uh, in a language that is very understandable to me because it, it's about and institutions and how we change things in, in the real world. And I think he makes some really good points about uh, the uncharted territory uh, of who do, are we looking for when I say uh, that uh, the suburbs could be a space of opportunity for social change. So who do we have in mind? And, uh, you know, I don't want to cop out from this question, but of course, um, one of the issues that he doesn't mention that name, uh, that word, but one of the uh, the concepts that I have been uh, strongly act advocating for is the concept of the region as a political uh, concept. Uh, and uh, that goes back to the idea that if we want to break down the binaries between the city and the suburb in a political sense, we do in fact have some workable notion of an urban region that could give us a new arena in which uh, we perhaps might be able uh, to come to new forms of, of, of agency. But what all three commentators uh, have said, I think they remind me of the work that I've been trying over the last two years after I finished the book, which is to focus on what Lefebvre, the disjunct fragments of extended urbanization of explosion of urbanization. And I'm trying to put these disjunct fragments conceptually back together again and create new political thinking around those disjunct fragments. And that speaks directly to Philip's uh, question about political actors. Now, but I, I think it's not possible conceptually or in real terms to put together these disjunct fragments, to put them together again into some form of whole under the current circumstances. And that has to do with the fact that what we experience is capitalist urbanization. And there is nothing harmonious about that. This is very fractious and it's very uh, contradictory. And it creates uh, poverty on the one side and it creates wealth on the other side. So if we want to find ways to put the disjunct fragments of the exploding parts of global and planetary urbanization back together again, we need to go beyond capitalism. So when we talk about um, post-suburbanization, we need to be honest with ourselves. The post-suburban world, which will also to some degree be a post-urban world, needs to be a world beyond capitalism. It cannot be otherwise. So we have to look at this process we're going through right now, the complete urbanization, the creation of urban society as a suburban society, we need to see that as the, the launching pad for new thinking about liberating ourselves from the capitalist imperative. And so here I'm thinking in two new directions, and I, I want to go to the boundaries of what the suburban world entails. On the one hand, I'm doing some research on suburban political ecology with some colleagues in Amsterdam, uh, but I'm also doing uh, work on infectious disease and suburbanization um, uh, you know, in the process of preparing to go to West Africa next week to uh, where I work with colleagues uh, in the context of uh, finding uh, out about community responses 
uh, to the Ebola outbreak there in 2014-15, which happened exactly in these new urban forms that are now so endemic in uh, in many parts of the world. But I also I want to point uh, to quest new kinds of thinking around uh, post-urban or post-suburban and post-capitalist forms of thinking like uh, Samuel Alexander's and Brendan Gleeson's work on degrowth in the suburbs. Uh, these are Australian researchers who have uh, done fantastic work on thinking towards the, um, the boundaries of the suburban possibility. But it is only when we go to these boundaries that we can get rid of the boundaries that Philip wants us to get rid of. Uh, it's only there that we can find the suburbanisms that uh, Teresa reminds us are so important to understand. And it's only there where we can, uh, you know, find a new way of recreating a relationship between the rural and the urban, the way that Berenice has been talking about, and creating new social and new spatial, new ecological relationships beyond the, the urban imaginary that industrial capitalism and 20th century urbanism uh, has given us. And that is where I want to go with uh, my research, with my political work, and I hope to be able to continue the dialogue with my three in interlocutors and you know others uh, as I go down this path. Thanks to our reviewers and to Roger Kyle. And thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.